Luke chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who, is, who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also bit and, and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they say, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authorities and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a Daenerys, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan, for reading the word for us. Uh, this is, friends, this good morning. This is a challenging text, so let's uh, really pray for ourselves and commit this time to God. Let's pray again. Gracious Father, we pray that the meditation of our hearts as we come to your word would be acceptable to you. And Father, I pray that you would also strengthen me, that you would give me the right words to speak, uh, to be faithful in speaking your word. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the uh, experiences of Chinese New Year this year has been quite different. Right? I think many of us have had, a, have had a quieter Chinese New Year than usual. And I think because of the, all the restrictions that have been placed upon us, right? So only eight 
people a day in any given home and no more than two homes uh, a day that we can visit. Uh, I think one of the things that COVID has imposed on us is all these restrictions on our personal freedoms, right? Things that we have taken for granted, a lot of ordinary things in life that we've done before are now kind of curtailed by a lot of restrictions. You know, many aspects of our lives are now subject to regulations. I think recently there was an interesting study by Lancet Planetary Health Journal talking about the different impact on COVID on different countries. And the study was trying to figure out you know, why is there a different impact on different countries. Obviously, there are a lot of factors that we can talk about, right? like wealth, uh, education, government, things like that. But I think this study just focused on one particular factor. And uh, the factor is there are cultural differences in the willingness to follow rules. So the, the study found that in loose cultures, right, cultures that maybe were less inclined to follow rules, uh, there were five times more cases of uh, COVID-19 and there were eight times as many deaths compared to cultures that were tighter. Right? And now the study doesn't make any value judgment on which culture is better. I think this is just a, an observation of, of what we see happening in the world today. So, so there's this understanding that authority can be good for us. Right? If, we, if we follow uh, what authority says, that there can be benefits for us as a society. And yet, at the same time, I think many things are happening in our world today that undermine our trust in authority. You know, military rulers abuse their authority and power by overthrowing elected governments. You know, some of us have experienced bad authority in our workplaces, you know, bosses who exploit workers. Uh, you know, even supposed Christian leaders are guilty of abusing their authority. I think even Christian leaders are found guilty of sexual abuse. And because we live in a fallen world, we are, you know, we've, we've grown suspicious of authority. Right? We we, we, don't, we don't think that authority has our best interests at heart. And so as a result, we reject authority and we trust in our own authority. Right? We think that we are the best people to look out for our own interest, not those in authority over us. And we, and we begin to respond wrongly to authority as well. Right? So we, we either trust bad authority or we distrust good authority. And conflict arises when, our, when authority threatens our autonomy. And in the Bible, this conflict with authority is, as old as, is almost as old as creation itself. It began with the serpent in the garden insinuating that God's authority was not good, that God is not to be trusted. Right? The serpent comes to the, the first woman and says to her, you know, did God actually say? And the first sin of mankind began with a distrust of God's authority. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, so they rejected the authority of God over them and they wanted to be in charge of their own lives. And this conflict that began in the garden continues to today. I think we can relate to that wrestle with authority. I think many of us, we want to be kings and queens over our own lives to be in charge of our own destinies, to be in charge of our own futures. 
And as we come to Luke chapter 20, this conflict with authority really dominates this whole chapter. So today we're going to look at the first part of Luke 20, and then next week, Lord willing, the second part. But, but this, this is, there's a recurring theme of this conflict with authority. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and the, the crowds have welcomed him with uh, shouts of the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So the crowds are acknowledging that he's the coming king. And Jesus had then proceeded to visit the temple, and he's cleansed the temple. Right? He's, dro- he's driven out all the merchants and money changers. And these are claims of authority. He's, he's, he's saying things and he's doing things that rightly belong to the king. But his claims of authority are making the religious leaders nervous. Right? They, they represent the establishment, uh, the, the powers that be, and, and they're getting nervous about what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem right? because they feel threatened. They feel that they will lose their authority if Jesus is given a free hand to do what he's doing. But they don't want Jesus to rule because they want to remain in charge. Hence, you have this conflict in Luke 20. But friends, conflict can be a good thing. Conflict can be clarifying. Right? Conflict confronts us with the truth. And conflict compels us to consider where we stand with respect to this truth. Right? Moments of conflict can be especially clarifying. And our passage confronts us with the truth that Jesus is the King with all authority because He is God's beloved Son. And therefore, we face this question as we come to this passage, where do we stand with respect to this truth about Jesus? If He's the King and God's beloved Son, where do we stand with respect to Him? Will we let the King rule over us? So three points as we work through our text this morning. Number one, Jesus has the authority of God's Son. Right? As uh, Pastor Ian mentioned last week, he, he read from Malachi. So the prophecy in Malachi that speaks of the Lord coming to his temple. And indeed, this passage opens with Jesus speaking and teaching at the temple. Right? It's a fulfillment of this prophetic promise from Malachi. Right? And verse 1 says that he was preaching the gospel. I think it's interesting how Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to an end. You know, he's about to go to the cross, but he remains faithful to the end, and he ends his earthly ministry in the same way in which he began it. He started in the synagogue, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour, proclaiming the good news, and he ends his ministry doing the same thing, proclaiming that same good news that the kingdom has come, that he's the king who offers us salvation in his name. And King Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. He, he preaches that his rule is a good rule, right? His rule is a loving rule. And in, in, under his authority, we find rest for our souls. But the religious leaders refuse to submit to him. Right? So in verse 2, they, they come to Jesus and they interrogate Jesus. They ask him, tell us by what authority you do these things. And who is it that gave you this authority? So basically, they want to find out what is, his, what is the nature of his authority and where it comes from? Right? What gives him the right to say and do these things? And the religious leaders, you know, their, their question of Jesus' authority has an has a, has a, has a underlying agenda. Right? They, they ask Jesus these things, not because they are honestly curious, but they want to justify their own unbelief. 
and their own disobedience to that authority. So they question it, right? they undermine it. Friends, I, I put it to us that, that we, we're not as different from them as maybe we think. You know, are there ways in which we deny the claims of Christ on us? You know, are there ways in which we deny His rightful authority over us? You know, let, let me give you some examples of what that might look like. You know, are there times when we've come to the Bible, we've read some things that maybe uh, conflict with our sense of autonomy? Maybe we've read some things in the Bible that conflict with what we're doing in our lives, and maybe we say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Right? That, that, that's not for me. That, that's maybe specific to that time, but it doesn't apply to me now. You know, maybe a friend has come up to us and said, hey, I, I think uh, you need to consider your life and maybe think about turning back to God. You know, because the scripture says this. You know, have we responded to the friend? Oh, you know, that's just your interpretation. Everyone has a different interpretation of this text. Right? That, that's just you. I have a different interpretation. You know, have we kind of excluded parts of our lives from what the word says? You know, I've heard it said, even in, even in churches among Christians who, you know, when, when we talk about Scripture and they'll say something like, that's, that's, that's an ideal situation, it doesn't apply to us because that's just an ideal situation that Scripture talks about. Well, friends, do we undermine the authority of Jesus and His Word by, by excusing ourselves from really hearing Him? You know, Jesus turns the tables on the religious leaders by responding to their question with a question of his own. So he asked them in verses 3 and 4, Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now at first it sounds like Jesus is being evasive. Right? You know, he's asked a question and he asked them a question back. You know, so is Jesus just evading the question? Uh, I, I put it to us that he's not. Because think about the, the logic of Jesus' question. Who was it that baptized Jesus at the start of his ministry? It was John the Baptist, right? John's baptism. John's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus by bearing witness to Jesus. So, if John's baptism was, is from heaven, meaning that if John has God-given authority, then whatever John says about Jesus has the full authority of God behind it. So if John says this about Jesus, then we need to listen to John because John is speaking the truth about Jesus. So, so that's actually the response to the religious leader's question. So basically Jesus is telling them, if you really listen to John, you will know where my authority comes from if you receive John's words because his authority comes from heaven. And what did John say about Jesus? I think in... In, in, in Luke chapter 3, John says this, He who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And, and who, is, who is able to baptize with the Spirit? Only God Himself. Only God Himself. So John is making a very big claim about this Messiah, about Jesus who is about to come. Jesus says to the, to the religious leaders, if you listen to John, then you know who I am and where my authority comes from. And then John's baptism of Jesus is especially significant because if you remember, at, at Jesus' baptism, what happens? The Father speaks. Right? 
And at Jesus' baptism, the Father endorses Jesus. Again, in, in, John, in, in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, and this is what the voice said, You are my beloved Son, my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Right? So if, if we receive John's baptism as authoritative, yes, it's from heaven, then we understand that this voice from heaven that spoke about Jesus comes with the authority of the Father himself. Jesus is who he says he is. He is God's beloved Son. So if the religious leaders were, are able to work out the logic of Jesus' question, they would know very clearly that Jesus has the full authority of God's beloved Son. And indeed, they will realize that Jesus fulfills the words of Psalm 2, the psalm that was read for us earlier in the service. Psalm 2 says, As for me, right, God is speaking, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Right, so the Father himself quotes from Scripture at Jesus' baptism. So Jesus' question kind of puts the religious leaders in a bind, right? So if, if John has God-given authority, and as we've seen, he has, then why did they not believe him? But if the religious leaders say John had no authority, then they'll face the wrath of the people because the people see John as a prophet sent by God. So the truth about Jesus is staring the religious leaders in the face, but but they're refusing to work out the logic of what's going on. They, they, they refuse to believe what Jesus is saying to them. So, so they, they game it out, right? They, they kind of work out all the possible conclusions of their actions. And in the end, their only response is to feign ignorance. They say, we don't know. Right? We don't know. Right? They, they, they're happy to remain agnostic <laughs> this question. So, but Jesus refuses to answer them because their hearts are hardened against him. So friends, as, as we think about unbelief, right, as, as we look at the unbelief of the religious leaders, as we think about maybe our own unbelief, I think we realize that unbelief is not merely an intellectual issue. So the, the problem with unbelief is not simply I need more information or if only I had better Bible knowledge. The, the problem with unbelief is fundamentally a spiritual issue. It, it, it's a heart condition. It's not just a matter of not knowing enough. Because the truth about Jesus is staring these religious leaders in the face. But, but they have willfully chosen to harden themselves against the clear testimony of Jesus. So unbelief is when we deliberately refuse to hear Jesus to go against the truth about him. And friends, we, we see in the example of the religious leaders that unbelief is also self-serving. Right? It's, it, it's self-centered. The religious leaders are actually very pragmatic people. And maybe as Singaporeans, we relate to that. Right? They're very pragmatic people. What, what, they're, what they really want is the 
maintenance of their power and prestige. Right? What they really want is to make sure that their lives are untouched by any other authority so that they can continue being in charge, living their lives their way, and continuing to enjoy their own authority. Right? So it's very pragmatic. And, and, they, they, and they play politics to protect their own interests. Right? They, they, wanna, they, they care about what the people think because they want to maintain their own power and influence. They care more, they care more about what other people think than about what Jesus thinks of them. And friends, oftentimes we reject the authority of the king when our own idols are threatened. Whatever idols we have in our hearts, idol of comfort, control, uh, idol of security, right? when our own idols are threatened, we reject the authority of Jesus. And friends, do we care more about what other people think of us than we care about what Jesus thinks of us? Think, think about your past week in the interactions that you've had with family, friends, with your colleagues, with your schoolmates. You know, were there times when we cared more about what other people thought of us than what Jesus thought of us? And this is the tragic irony of unbelief. Right? The, the religious leaders, out of their self-interest, want to protect their own interests, so they reject the authority of Jesus. But, but the, the tragedy of it is that the more, the more self-interested we are, the more protective of our own interests we are, the, the more we stand to lose. Right? Jesus says, if, if we insist on being in charge ourselves, we will lose everything. Right? Jesus says in, in Luke 9, whoever would save his life, right? whoever would try to cling on to his own authority, whoever tries to just remain in charge will lose his life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will save it. Right? Whoever's willing to, to give up control and say, yes, Lord, you're right. I'm not in charge. You are. Right? You're not just a saviour, but you're also a Lord. You know, whoever gives up his life in this way to Jesus, will save it. For what profits a man if he gains the whole world, if, if he remains in charge, and then he loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus is the son with authority. So next, Jesus warns us about rejecting his authority. It's in verses 9 to 19. So Jesus follows on in his interactions with the religious leaders and he tells them a parable to warn them about the consequences of rejecting his authority. And in this parable, there are a couple of characters. Uh, one of the characters is a man who planted a vineyard who let it out to tenants, right? Tenants in the vineyard. And this is a really striking illustration because Jesus is speaking at the temple and at the entrance of the temple, there's this huge golden vine that decorated the entrance of the temple. This beautiful sculpture of a golden vine with grapes, clusters of grapes dot, dotting the whole uh, vine. And, and there's a purpose why the, the entrance of the temple is decorated with a vine. Right? Because in the Old Testament, uh, Israel is described as a vine. That's how Israel is described in the Old Testament. A vine planted by God. A couple of passages in the Old Testament talk about this, like Psalm 80, for example. 
you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land. Isaiah 5 speaks of Israel as a vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And Hosea 10, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. So the vine and vineyard image in Old Testament is, is a picture, is an image of God's provision and presence with His people. It, it, it's, a, it's a sign of God's nearness to His people. God rescued Israel from Egypt, planted His people in the promised land, provided richly for them in the hope that they would be uh, a nation that would glorify God among the other nations, right? a nation of, of priests that would reveal the beauty of God to the surrounding nations. So that was the fruit that God was expecting from Israel. But, you know, but those of us who are familiar with the Old Testament, we know that Israel failed in its calling from God. Israel rejected God, distrusted God's good authority over them, threw off God's word and decided to become just like the nations. And, and so God, throughout the Old Testament, he, he, he sends prophets and He speaks to Israel. Right? One example of that is in Isaiah 5, verse 2 to 4. Right? Isaiah, you know, God says through Isaiah the prophet about, about Judah. Right? He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So God is saying, you know, I've, I've shown only goodness to my people. I've given them tremendous privileges and benefits. Why have they responded to me with distrust and unbelief? Right? That, that's the plea of God in Isaiah 5. You know, God, you know, to change the metaphor a bit, God is like a, a distressed parent right, saying to his child, have I not done everything in my power for you? Why have you responded in this way to me? Friends, God made us for Himself. To know Him, to enjoy Him forever. You know, God has only been good to us. He's given us rich blessings for our good and for His glory. But friends, in, instead of trusting God and His authority, I think we've responded to Him uh, by wanting to be in charge of our own lives. So every sin is a belief that God is not good, right? that, that we responded to Him, doubting His goodness. Friends, how, how have we forsaken God in this way? How have we forsaken the source of what is truly good and turned to broken and empty things that can never fulfill or satisfy us? You know, have we turned away from the source of living waters and trusted in broken cisterns that can hold no water? Have we trusted in our own authority to make sense of our own lives, to, to make our own plans, apart from God, thinking that we're better off uh, 
being in charge of our own lives. The owner wants fruit from his vineyard, so he sends servants one after another to his tenants. The owner patiently bears with his uncooperative tenants. So the sending of successive servants is a picture of the owner's patience with the tenants. He sends not just one servant, not just two servants, but three servants, one after another, in the hope that his tenants will respond to him positively. But to no avail. The parable says that the, the, the tenants keep beating the servants and sending them away empty-handed, without any fruit. But still, the owner persists. Right? He, he's not done. After sending the third servant, he's not done. He, he resolves to send his own son. And I think it's interesting, the way Jesus tells us the parable, Jesus you know, puts us in the shoes of this owner. Right? We, we kind of see the, the, the workings of the owner's mind. Right? The, the way he's wrestling with the, the hardness of his tenants, right? He still desires that they give him fruit, that they respond well to him. So he says, you know, what shall I do? Ah, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Notice how Jesus in the parable speaks of the owner saying, I will send my beloved son. The mention of beloved son actually connects this parable to what we saw earlier on in the passage. Jesus is God's beloved son, as God the Father himself said at Jesus' baptism. So by mentioning beloved son in the parable, this is clearly a reference to himself coming to Israel, seeking fruit from his people. He is God's beloved son. And the sending of the son is the culmination of God's patient mercy. The sending of the Son is not out of exasperation, it's not out of frustration, but it's the culmination of God's mercy. God God sends His very Son, seeking fruit and a response from His people. But the tenants are so blinded by their desire to be in charge. What do they do? They imagine that they will gain from slaying the Son. Verse 15 says, They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The murder of the beloved son is the greatest sin of all of human history. The murder of God's beloved son is the greatest sin perpetrated in all of human history. But I think what's amazing here in in the parable is Jesus is speaking of his own death, right? As he tells the parable, he's he's actually predicting his own death that will soon come in Jerusalem. So God is able to take the greatest sin in all of human history and to work it for good. The fact that Jesus predicts his own death reveals that he is in control, that his death is not accidental, his death is not events overtaking him, His death is not some bad circumstance where he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, he he is in full control of what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to die. He knows that he's going to the cross. And he's going to the cross in humble obedience to the Father. Why? Because he's he's the Father's beloved Son. And the beloved Son obeys the Father to the end. 
even to a humiliating end on the cross. And he goes to the cross to die in the place of rebels like us who have rejected God's rightful authority over us. And he dies for us so that we, undeserving as we are, can be forgiven and brought back to God. And he rose from the dead to give us life and hope, securing life for us. Friends, if you you ever doubt God's goodness, if you ever wonder if God's authority is good for you, you only need to look to the cross and to say, yes, our God is good. Yes, I can trust Him because of what His beloved Son has done, because He has sent His Son for me and for my salvation. Friends, I, I don't know what your circumstances are this morning. I mean, there are many of us here. I'm sure some of us are in difficult circumstances and in, in tough times, we may wonder if, if God cares, if God is good, can I really trust Him? Should I just make a plan myself? Or, or can I submit my life to His sovereignty? I think the encouragement for us, friends, this morning is, yes, we can trust Him because His beloved Son has laid down His life for us. And He's good. And we can rest in Him. So will we trust in King Jesus? Will we submit ourselves to His authority because we know that He is good? You know, the owner of the vineyard will not suffer squatters forever. One day, He's, come, he's going to come and collect rent. Right? There is... Uh, a limit to his patience with his tenants. The owner will come and destroy the tenants. Friends, Jesus speaks plainly about judgment in this parable. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. But today is still the day of salvation. So as, as as we hear the parable today, I think God is calling us, don't take his grace for granted. Believe in His beloved Son while we can. Today is the day of salvation. So the the tenants are destroyed and the vineyard is given to others. This refers to the Gentiles. So God is seeking fruit from His people. He's seeking faith and obedience from His people. And, And this parable says that God's people will encompass not just Jews, but also Gentiles because the vineyard is given to those who would bear fruit to those who would receive the Son and would be fruitful because of the Son. What matters to God is not ethnicity. What matters to God is not religious heritage. But what matters to God is genuine faith in His Son, in His beloved Son. Being a Jew by physical descent doesn't automatically guarantee that one belongs to God. And and this is deeply shocking to Jesus' hearers because remember, He's speaking to religious leaders. And so for them to hear that the vineyard is given to others, meaning non-Jews, I mean, this is deeply offensive and shocking to them. And that's why they respond to Jesus in verse 16, surely not, you know, how can this be, right? Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? Surely this can't happen? Well, but later on, the Apostle Paul will say something similar to Jesus. In Romans 2, he says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Friends, I think this parable warns us not to presume on religious pedigree or performance. Friends, some of us have grown up in a Christian home. Some of us have been regularly attending church for a long time. But friends, as, as good as these things are, they cannot save us. They, they're not worthy of our trust, right? In the sense, we, we can't depend our spiritual well-being just on these things, as good as they are. This, this parable is a call to us to examine ourselves. Like where do we stand with regards to Jesus? Are we really trusting Him? You know, is He really our King? Is He Lord over every aspect of our lives? Friends, we, we also have to examine ourselves as a church, collectively. What are we as a church trusting in? Friends, there's much that we can be thankful for. We can be thankful for our 60-plus years of history. We can, we can be thankful for the material resources that we have. You know, we're enjoying this space that we can meet in. We can be thankful for our doctrinal orthodoxy. Right? It's a good thing to believe the truth, a good thing to like Bible preaching and, and, and things like that. But God forbid that we think that we are spiritually okay just because we have such things. Right? It's a good time for us to reflect on where, where we stand as a church as well. You know, this is the, with the season of Lent has just begun. Right? Ash Wednesday was this past Wednesday. So we're in the 40 days in the lead up to Easter and it's very customary in a time of Lent to engage in, in, in helpful self-examination for us to consider, do we see our need for Christ? Have we become kind of maybe somewhat distant from Him? Do we see that He is the Saviour we need? This is a good time to kind of humble ourselves before Jesus and, and to prepare ourselves to celebrate His death and resurrection for our sakes. At Easter, at Good Friday and Easter. So, Grace Baptist Church, how are we faithful? How are we fruitful for Jesus? Friends, if we become proud, if we become self satisfied, if we become self dependent, trusting in the resources that we have, trying to safeguard all the resources that we have, if we start becoming self dependent and self righteous, if, if we become unfaithful to Christ and His truth, if we pay lip service to Him, but our hearts are far from Him, if we do not bear the fruit of repentance and faith in our lives, day to day, week to week, then friends, this, this parable is a very sober warning to us. God has every right to take away the vineyard from us. You know, we're not entitled to the vineyard regardless of how we respond to Jesus. Friends, this, this is the sober warning from this passage. This is a heavy parable, but I think it speaks to us and I pray that our hearts will be soft 
and humble before God as we consider our own lives, as we consider the health of this church? Are we faithful to Christ? Do we really trust Him? Are we fruitful for His sake? Or are we trusting in all the things, the stuff that we have? Friends, beware of rejecting the Son's authority. King Jesus is the precious cornerstone. There's only one cornerstone. There's only one foundation on which we build. And that's Christ Himself. If Jesus is not our Saviour, then He will be our judge. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Finally, verses 20 to 26, submit to the Son's authority. Now, the the religious leaders may be spiritually blind, but they're not dumb. They know that Jesus has been speaking the parable against them. But instead of repenting, their, their, their hearts are hardened even more towards Jesus. Right? They, 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 their autonomy is threatened, so they respond with fighting. Right? They, they, conflict arises when, our, when Jesus' authority threatens our autonomy. And so the religious leaders want to kill Jesus, but because they fear how the people will react, they decide to wait in ambush. They send out spies in the hope of trapping Jesus into saying something against the Romans. So they want the Romans to do their dirty work for them. They say, well, if we can't kill Jesus ourselves, then we let the Romans do it. Maybe he will say something wrong and get himself in trouble with the Romans. So the spies approach Jesus with flattery. They come to him and say, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Then they ask Jesus whether it is lawful for Jews to give tribute to Caesar or not. You know, the, the tribute that they mentioned, this is a tax paid directly to the Roman emperor on top of other civic taxes and religious taxes. So this was in addition to the other taxes. As you can imagine, this tribute was deeply, deeply detested because it significantly added to people's financial burdens. Right? I think historians say that together with this tribute, the people were paying about 30 to 40% of their income in taxes. It's a huge chunk of their income. So they really hated this tribute that they had to pay to Caesar. Now, it's good to ask honest questions of Jesus, but this question is, a, is, is politically loaded. Right? It, it's not a sincere question. It's a very cunning question. Right? Because think about, think about the, the potential replies. If, if Jesus said, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he will be viewed as a Roman collaborator and, and he'll lose all credibility with the people. The people will say, well, why should we listen to you? You're siding with the Romans. So forget you, we'll look for some other teacher. Right? So he'll lose all credibility with the people. They won't follow him. But if Jesus says, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he will be accused of inciting insurrection against the Roman government, who will not hesitate to kill him. You know, they've dealt with other messianic movements before, and they are well prepared to put him to death. So it looks like the religious leaders have Jesus trapped, right? If I say, if I say yes, it's not good. If I say no, it's not good. So what, what will he say? Jesus responds by asking them to show him a denarius. 
So a, dead, a, a denarius is a Roman coin. As you see in the slide, it has a, on one side, it was stamped with the image of the Roman emperor, Caesar. In fact, the, the Jews considered the denarius idolatrous, right? Because the Jews believed you can't have a graven image. Anything with a graven image is like an idol. So, so many Jews actually rejected the use of the denarius, right? They, they used their own currency because the denarius was seen as idolatrous. So, so it's rather ironic that when Jesus asked his questioners for a denarius, they are prepared to give him one, meaning that they themselves have bought into the idolatrous Roman system. So, so that's a little irony in our passage. So Jesus then asked them when they produced that denarius, whose likeness is on the coin? And then they said, well, Caesar's. It's quite obvious. You can see his mug shot on the coin. And Jesus says to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Right? In a sense, saying to them, well, this is just a coin, right? It belongs to Caesar. It has this image on it. So are, are you so caught up with the idolatry of wealth that you can't give up to Caesar what belongs to him? Just give him what belongs to him. I think the other principle that we can draw from what Jesus says is that God instituted earthly governments. Therefore, we obey God by fulfilling our civic duties. Right? For example, it says in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And interestingly enough, I think Paul quotes Jesus in Romans 13, right? Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. So friends, keep wearing your masks, <laughs> respect safe distance, sit in zones, leave in zones. Right? Those, those are just little ways that we show that we submit to the authority, that the, the earthly authority that God has placed over us. But friends, there's more, right? There's more to Jesus' reply. He tells us that the government's authority isn't absolute. The government's authority isn't ultimate. We are not obliged to obey the government when it calls us to sin. We are not obliged when the government calls us to neglect faithful stewardship and obedience to God. In the, in the 1980s, when the South African government supported racist pro-apartheid policies, you know, Bishop, Bishop Desmond Tutu was arrested for protesting. So they, they hauled him in for questioning and they asked him, why do you keep protesting? Why don't you just do what we tell you to do? Why do you keep defying us and going against what the government says you should be doing? And this was Bishop Tutu's reply. He said, well, we are not defying anyone. We are simply trying to obey God. Friends, we are accountable to a higher authority who is above all three powers. That's why Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but remember this, give to God what belongs to God. Now, Roman emperors stamp 
their coins with their image to show their sovereignty. So, that, so they wanted their coins to have white currency, right? So as the coin spreads, the hope is that, hey, my, my sovereignty is spreading across all of my realm. Well, friends, God has stamped his image, not on a coin, but on us. Right? We are the imprint of his likeness. And, and God has stamped his image on us in the hope that we will display his sovereignty, right? that we will spread the, the beauty of his rule across all of creation. That when people see us, they should see, yes, this God is good, and his people delight in his authority. That's what it means to be made and stamped with God's image. Friends, we owe God. Right? We, we owe him our very selves. And praise God that because of the mercies of Christ, we have been saved in order to belong to this God. We've been saved in order to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And Jesus has all authority because he is God's beloved son. And we give to God what belongs to God by listening to his son, by following his son. And God says to us, this is my beloved son. Hear him, trust him, find life in him. When we trust in Jesus, we find that his rule is good, his authority is good, and he's the king we need. As it says in Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. My friends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, passage ends with the religious leaders silenced with no response. But friends, may that not be true of us. May we respond to Jesus with words of humble trust and praise and worship. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy and grace. We thank you for how you have sent your Son, your beloved Son, for us and for our salvation. Father, we are amazed that you should decide to not spare your Son, but deliver him up for us all. So Father, because of the mercies of Christ, we pray that we would trust him. We pray that we would gladly submit to his rightful authority over us, that our lives would be lived for him and for his glory. Uh, Father, we pray that you will work in our hearts. We pray that you would draw us near to you. Help us to, help us to repent of all the times when we have submitted to other authorities in rebellion against you. Help us to repent of our desire for autonomy from you, times when we have decided that we want to be in charge rather than you. So, Father, we pray that you would draw us near to you. Help us as a church to be fruitful, to be faithful for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.